Let us open our Bibles to the 10th chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 10. I will not be continuing our study of this chapter in an expository way this morning because I'm going to divert for a while in order to remind us of what the whole Bible teaches about faith so that we can best understand Romans chapter 10 and 11. But primarily chapter 10 because it is a passage that has been so abused by those we call Arminians. An Arminian, and if I use the word again, let me remind you, is someone who believes that man is not depraved. Man's just a little sick and a little sorry. But he's not dead in trespasses and sins. He's not really depraved. He still has free will. Meaning that if we can organize a motorcycle lock-in or something for youth, and we can have Tim Tebow there to give his testimony, people could be saved. Because reprobates, there is no such thing to them because there's no election. Those that are sinners can exercise their free will and believe the gospel, believe the Lord Jesus Christ, and get themselves saved. We understand things very differently, and so did our fathers in the faith. We know that salvation depends upon God's electing grace in eternity, Christ's justifying death on the cross, the powerful work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us. Regenerate means to be born again, means to quicken us, to give us life, because we're dead in trespasses and sins, and only then do we ever believe the gospel, so that believing the gospel becomes an evidence of our salvation, assurance of our salvation, proof of our salvation, not the condition or the instrument or the means of our salvation. We thank God through Jesus Christ for showing us the truth that His choice came first, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, which we used moments ago, Psalm 65 and verse 4, God's choice came first, then God caused us to approach unto Him. If it hadn't been for God drawing us, we never would have come to Christ. It's the work of God first. Then we have our faith. And our faith does not add to the work of God. It doesn't finish the work of God. And when we believe first or when we believe last or believing in between does not change our standing in heaven whatsoever. Our names were written there before the foundation of the world. That's what the Bible says. There's no new names ever being written down in glory. They were written there before the world began. From the beginning, we were given to the Lord Jesus Christ to save, and He'll absolutely save every single one that was given to Him. None will be lost. None will ever be separated from the love of God in the lake of fire. None, ever. Faith is the first and a weak step at that of proving that we're God's elect. Faith is the first act of obedience to the Word of God. Along with repentance, then comes baptism, then comes confession with our mouths, and then comes all the good works the New Testament describes ought to follow true faith. And then we can know that we're God's elect. Then we can know that we're saved. That's what the Bible teaches repeatedly. You can make your calling and election sure by doing eight things listed in Second Peter chapter 1. Paul said he knew that the Thessalonians were God's elect because of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Let me read to you 
four verses here. Five verses. Romans 10, verses 9 through 13. These we're going to come back to in a few weeks, and we will explain them phrase by phrase like we have everything else in Romans to this point. I want you to remember what we learned last Lord's Day, though. It fits and serves us well right here, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. Romans 10 cannot be studied nor understood in a vacuum. It must be understood in light of what the rest of the Bible teaches about faith and confession, which is what we're going to do. Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In studying the Word of God, when you happen upon any verse, there is a very simplistic hermeneutic to follow. Hermeneutics is the science of Bible interpretation. The simplest hermeneutic is, first of all, I determine what a verse does not mean. By ruling out all the possibilities that are condemned by the rest of the Bible, then I worry about finding out what a verse does mean. Not everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord is going to be saved because Jesus said that very plainly. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus would say in Luke chapter 6, Why call ye me Lord, and do not the works that I teach? So we know we've got some problems. And the problems could be multiplied indefinitely, but that's not my purpose this morning. My purpose is to go after what the Bible teaches about faith and its role in our salvation. In order for us to understand these words because of our background as Arminians, most of us were Arminians in our past, and that means we believed all that free will junk taught by these man-worshipping theistic humanists that populate most pulpits that every man has within himself still the strength and the ability and the desire to invite Jesus into their heart, which isn't taught any place in the Bible for salvation, but they've multiplied it from so many pulpits, and we once believed it, that when we come to a passage like this, which was one of their favorite places to abuse, it's hard for us to understand the rightful sense of these words. So we're going to take a little aside here and study the role of faith in our salvation. Remember... The Apostle Paul in writing Romans and the Apostle Paul in writing Galatians had one common enemy at hand that dictated how he argued and how he wrote. And that enemy was Jewish legalism. Jewish legalists were the Jews that believed because they were related to Abraham, because they were keeping the ceremonial law of 
Moses, and because they had been circumcised, were automatically going to go to heaven. And teachers of that false system of salvation were infecting the churches of the New Testament, so the Apostle Paul had to rebut them. The Apostle Paul had to defend the truth against them. Salvation is not because we're related to Abraham. John the Baptist met with that in Matthew right off the bat. The Lord Jesus Christ met with it. He dealt with it most extensively in John chapter 8, when he told them, Ye are not the children of Abraham, though they were. They were the Jews. But they weren't the children of Abraham that God counts for the seed of Abraham. Because the only ones that God counts for the seed of Abraham are those that are in Christ Jesus, the true seed of Abraham. He said, Ye are of your father, the devil. John 8, 44. The Apostle Paul had to deal with that same enemy, especially among Gentile churches because Jews were so envious at the number of Gentiles being converted. And so they would come and try to get these Gentiles to be circumcised, to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Remember the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 was all about this issue. Paul was there at his home church in Antioch of Syria, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, And in come these teachers from Jerusalem saying, you've got to keep the law of Moses to be saved. And so he and Barnabas and some others went down to Jerusalem to set that matter straight. And the great church council of Jerusalem was held that determined the Gentiles didn't need to do any such thing to be saved. They'd been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostles themselves were hoping to be saved by the very same means. If you read that passage. James is much easier to grasp than Romans, because James is dealing with an enemy more like what we have to deal with. We have to deal with the easy believism of the 20th and 21st centuries. All the Billy Graham influence and preachers of his sort that have just taught that a momentary decision by someone coming forward is the saving event in their lives. The saving event is not the cross, because most people that Jesus died for, according to their theology, end up in hell. The saving moment is this little decision that people make at the front. And they're so concerned about that decision, there's actually a a controversy called the Lordship Controversy, where the consistent ones say that you do not have to admit, you do not have to confess or believe that Jesus is Lord in order to be saved. All you have to do is admit that He's your Savior, and you don't want to go to hell, and your name is written down in the book of life. That's what's happened in the last hundred years. That isn't taught in the Bible anywhere. They talk to you about accepting Jesus. You can't find that in the Bible. What we're going to find in the Bible is that God had better accept us because of Jesus. That's what counts. They say you need to invite Jesus into your heart. You can't find that taught in a Bible. Where Jesus stands at a door and knocks in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 is not the heart's door of a sinner. That is of a church that thinks they're doing just fine without fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with salvation. They've so corrupted the Bible, and they've corrupted Romans chapter 10, and we're going to set it straight. But we're going to do it this way. For a few sermons, I'm going to preach to you about the role of faith in salvation, and we're going to cover every aspect of faith, our faith, man's faith. We're going to look at Old Testament faith and New Testament faith. We're going to look at the source of faith. We're going to look at the grammar of faith. We're going to look at faith. And so that we can nail down what the Bible teaches about faith so that we can come back into Romans chapter 10 
and sail through these verses more easily. I hope that you understand that, and I hope that it's the wisdom of God that's led me to do this. This subject is very important for us. And any passage emphasizing faith so that we steer between the ditch of decisional regeneration. That's what I mean when they say, come forward. Those of you that want to be saved, come forward. Repeat after me. You can watch Joel Osteen tonight and watch his little canned 45 seconds. See, Joel never preaches Jesus. It's never crossed Joel's mind to preach Jesus. Joel tonight, even though I don't know what he's going to preach yet, is going to preach about how you ought to be happy and prosperous and settle your divorce and get a new job and have lots of money and get rid of your debts. If he preached Jesus for two weeks, his crowd of 30,000 would be less than 3,000. Nobody would want to hear it. When he gets to the end of his little spiel about having the good life, which Jesus never taught, nor did the apostles ever teach, he'll have 45 seconds of a little canned invitation to invite Jesus into their heart. And before that, you never heard the word out of his mouth. Makes me sick. Like it does a few other people in this country at this time. We want to steer between that ditch. We want to steer between the ditch of fatalism that ignores everything that the Bible has to say about faith and good works because the Bible has a lot to say about both. And we want to steer down the crown of the road. We want to be on the the yellow line, the center of the road, staying away from both ditches. You know, a road curves toward its ditches. We don't want to get on that slope away from truth. We want the crown of the road when it comes to God's Word. And may He help us. Lord, help us. Rightly divide the word of truth. This subject is also very important for our own assurance and evidence of salvation. Since the Bible has much to say about believing and knowing that you're saved, we want to make sure that we know all those verses and understand them, that we can make our calling and election sure before God the way He wants us to using the whole New Testament. We don't want to have our favorite verses and our least favorite verses because then we would be hypocrites for accusing others of doing that. We want to be fair with the whole Word of God. This study is also important for our understanding to know how far we ought to press others to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and how we should go about doing it. We've started this morning with 2 Thessalonians 2.13, which tells us we are obligated to give thanks to God for any faith that's in us. Because if we believe, it's because God sanctified us through the power of the Holy Ghost by making us holy and separating us for His use. And if He made us holy by the sanctification of the Spirit, it's because He chose us to it from the beginning. And if He chose us to it from the beginning, it's because we are His beloved. All that is in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We are obligated to give you thanks for believing the truth, and we give you thanks this day. We're not going to be exhaustive on every point because all these points have been exhausted at other times, but we're going to be very broad in covering every point that we can And the outline will refer anyone who wants to study further to the more exhaustive studies on those particular points. Let's get started by looking at the word salvation. You know, since you're at this passage, we can look at Romans 10.10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. 
We can look at verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Lord has taught us already that we need to rightly divide the word of truth. That's a verse that children memorize from 2 Timothy 2.15. In that it's found in Timothy, that means it's a pastoral epistle. Paul wrote it to another pastor to give him direction for his life and for his ministry. First and Second Timothy and Titus are the three pastoral epistles in your New Testament. Second Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul told Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth. God has blessed us to show us that the word salvation needs to be rightly divided. And so we see five phases of salvation taught in the New Testament. You know, we, we often, when we're taking our time dealing with this subject, we say, what would Paul say to the question, Paul, when were you saved? Do you know what the average person thinks? That he was saved in the road to Damascus. Unbelievable ignorance. Unbelievable. Paul would say, God saved me according to his purpose and calling and grace, which was given me in Christ Jesus before the world began. Amen. That's what he said. Yeah. 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul would say, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So Paul would say, I was saved when Jesus came into the world and died on the cross. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Paul would say, I was saved by the work of the Holy Ghost, regenerating me and renewing me. Well, there's three that didn't happen on the road to Damascus. Then he would say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, take heed. Timothy, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. Timothy, make sure you take care of two things, yourself and the doctrine. Continue in doing those two things. For in so doing, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now did Paul ordain an unsaved man? Not a chance. But there is a salvation that comes through Believing and obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it takes our life. Paul said, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I have fought a good fight. So that's another phase of salvation that took the entirety of Paul's life, of obeying God. Just like he told Timothy, Timothy, if you compromise on your own personal life or on the doctrine that you're supposed to be teaching, you will lose your salvation and your people will lose their salvation. Now, that doesn't mean you can lose your place in the book of life or Jesus' death for you on the cross, or you can become unregenerate after being regenerated. It means you can lose your practical salvation in the gospel. Then, Paul would say in Romans 13, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Now, if salvation is nearer... That means Paul didn't have it yet. So if you were to ask Paul, when were you saved? Before the foundation of the world, when God chose me in Christ Jesus, in the fullness of time, 4,000 years after creation, when Jesus came into this world and died on the cross for me, 
And then sometime during my early lifetime, maybe as a child, I was born again by the Holy Ghost. I have faithfully kept the course that God gave me through the scriptures of the prophets and the apostles. And in a sense, I'm not saved yet because I'm not glorified yet. Until Jesus Christ comes back and gets our bodies out of the ground and glorifies us, we're not fully saved. That's called in Romans chapter 8, waiting for redemption. To wit, the adoption of our bodies. Not until our bodies are glorified and put back together with our spirits are we finally and fully saved. And yet, along comes the Arminians, believe and be saved. What are you talking about? What are you talking about when you say that? Give us the whole counsel of God. Don't give us a soundbite that you don't have the foggiest of what you're talking about. There's election. There's justification. There's regeneration. There's conversion. And there's eventual glorification. And four of those have nothing to do with your faith. And one of them has something to do with your faith. This is what the Lord wants us to know. This is what we have to do when we come to a verse that says, like verse 13 of Romans 10, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In what sense will they be saved for calling upon the name of the Lord? If you show me someone calling upon the name of the Lord in sincerity, I'll show you someone who's already saved before they called upon the name of the Lord. Because Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, No man can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Ghost. And if the Holy Ghost is already inside of them, causing them to sincerely call upon Jesus Christ as Lord, they're already born again. If they're already born again, then they're already justified by Christ on the cross because the Holy Spirit does not go around regenerating those that aren't justified. And if they're justified in the cross, they were chosen to it by the God of heaven before the world began. This is called the doctrine of election and predestination. This is called by some Calvinism, which we detest, because we are not Calvinists. If you want a title for us, we're hyper-Calvinists. We go beyond that whitewashed Arminian named John Calvin. We go to the high Calvinism of our fathers in England, the particular Baptists. We believe in eternal justification by the will of God in choosing us in Christ before the world began, because justification in the mind of God is an imminent act by putting us in Christ in an eternal union with Him. The songwriters that we sing, the John Kents, they understood the things that we teach now. The rest of the religious world has changed. We haven't changed. We're just holding to the particular redemption and particular salvation that our fathers believed. On our website is that precious document called Justification by Jesus Christ Alone. By Samuel Richardson, a signer of the First Baptist Confession of Faith in 1647, 1647 in London, England, in which his work, called Justification by Christ Alone, has a subtitle, And Not Believing. It's not our faith that justifies us. It's our faith that lays hold of the justification secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, It is finished, Something was finished. And you are not going to add to it. You of all people are not going to add to it. Me of all people are not going to add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we've got to ask, what phase of salvation is under consideration when it says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved? Does that mean God elects 
on the basis of men believing and being baptized? Not a chance. How do we know that? Well, let's look at Psalm 14. Psalm 14. God does not elect on the basis of seeing men believing Him and being baptized. And yet it says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. We're going to deal with that text. We're going to deal with all of them. The Lord willing. The Lord helping us. It's, this is necessary for us. And may the result be a greater comprehension of the whole New Testament. And may we leave it with greater appreciation for our faith. May we leave it understanding the necessity of good works to prove our faith is being valid. And may we leave it with understanding what role evangelism should play in this church. Our website circles this globe and we're hit by every country of the world. And we want to be able to put things out there to press them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in the right context as aggressively as we should by Scripture. We don't care if anyone would call us an Arminian because of us doing it. We don't care what names they may throw at us because all we care about is hearing these words, Well done, my good and faithful servants in Greenville when we stand before Jesus Christ. Psalm 14 tells us this in verse 2. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Now, it's nice to be able to prove from a Bible that God did look down upon all of us humans to see if there were any that understood that He was God and that they should be seeking Him. They should, wanting, they should be wanting to believe on His Son, Jesus. So we believe that God looked down. What did He find? Did He find that there were people that would believe on Jesus as long as He sent Billy Graham or Tim Tebow to talk to them? Verse 3, they are all. How many is that? They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. When God looked down, we were all going our own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And if it wasn't for the grace of God arresting us and turning us by the napes of our neck, and that's a metaphor for the spiritual work of grace He does in our hearts, with the case of Lydia in Acts chapter 16, it was opening her heart, we would never have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. We would still be glutting ourselves on the husks and corn of the pig pen of this world if it weren't for the grace of God to put us in our right mind and to turn us home. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. Look at Romans chapter 3, where that passage is quoted by the Apostle Paul to describe universal depravity and condemnation. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Are Jews better than Gentiles? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. I am now at Romans 3.10. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. See, that's from Psalm 14. Verse 11. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. That is from Psalm 14. They are all gone out of the way. 
They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. He repeats those words from the 10th verse again in the 12th verse to make sure you understand that there is not a single person that has ever inhabited this planet that would have ever turned their eyes and heart heavenward and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? When a man says that in sincerity, it is because God has already got a hold of his heart and he's a regenerated man or he would never say it. It goes on to describe their throat in verse 13, their mouth, their mouth in verse 14, their feet in verse 15, their ways in verse 16 and 17. And then verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is our condition by nature. Therefore, when God looked down, there were none to elect based on what he saw in them. The only way he could elect is to elect based on what he had in himself, of himself, for himself, for his own glory. And he did. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. The whole Bible teaches this if people would just read it and believe it. Why in the world did God choose one nation and reject all the rest in the Old Testament? Why did He send that one nation to kill all the rest of the nations? Annihilate the man, woman, and child. He didn't care about senior citizens, and He didn't care about infants. Why? Why did He send a flood to drown them? Tim Tebow would tell you God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I wonder what Tim Tebow would have said from the door of the ark as the rest of the planet drowned, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Amen. Was Noah perfect? Not a chance. Look what he did as soon as he got off the ark. He got drunk and was naked in his tent, and something transpired between him and his youngest son. It's by the grace of God, brethren. Amen. There's a great God in heaven. We had our chance at salvation in the Garden of Eden. We could eat of the tree of life. But our first mother and first father chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. They didn't die physically. Adam lived to be 930 years old. But he died spiritually that day. And we just read about that spiritual death. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. And I went out of the way as much or more than anyone that's ever lived. I had the best parents God ever gave a young man. I ran out of that house at 16 years of age, my father trying to give me a Bible. And I said, I don't have any need of that where I'm going. I was going to make up for being a pastor's son. And I tried. But I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord, who took me by the nape of my neck and brought me home and put my nose in his word. Amen. Amen. Right. And though the road's been long and arduous, and though I'm a great fool by nature, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord, that he saves even fools. Amen. Against their will. My will was totally contrary to everything God or the Bible has to say about a young man, and yet he saved me anyway. Yes. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, According as he hath chosen us, 
there's so I can't preach election and everything else, or we're going to be one year on the role of faith and salvation. But look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is He worthy of being blessed? Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. How do you get all spiritual blessings that Jesus Christ has secured for us? How do you get them? They're in Christ. How do we get in Christ to where those blessings are? Verse 4. According. Here's how it happens. As He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God chose us against our wills, put us in Christ before the world began, before our first parents existed. He already knew my name and had written my name in the book of life. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today, He wrote your name in the book of life before the world began. Because that's what Revelation chapter 13 and 17 teach us. Having predestinated us. I had my destiny determined by God. Not me. My destiny was was sin and hell as a consequence. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. It was God's good pleasure to predestinate me and to elect me, to save me. It was God's pleasure. It was His will that was involved not mine, to the praise of the glory of His grace. If it was my will that made the difference, it'd be to the praise of my intelligence. But it's to the praise of the glory of His grace that chose me in Christ Jesus before the world began. Then it says, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. You don't get to heaven by accepting Jesus. You can't find that in a Bible. You can find that in Tim Tebow's New York Jets playing book. But you can't find it in a Bible. What counts in the Bible is God accepting us in the Beloved. Who's the Beloved? This is my Beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God chose us in Christ before the world began. Verse 4, and in Christ, God has looked on us from eternity as being just like His Son because we're clothed in His Son's righteousness. We're acceptable in heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord because that is what we were predestinated to. It's not our accepting. Our faith and belief doesn't show up in this passage until you get to verses 13 and 14. It is all the work of God leading us up to that point. So when we say, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We need to ask the question, what salvation is intended by the Holy Spirit? It can't be election. It can't be Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross and justified us by His singular obedience. And this is a whole subject deserving at least a sermon itself, but turn to Romans 5, and I'll try to limit myself to one passage. Romans chapter 5. This is a wonderful text. I never appreciated the Lord Jesus Christ as much until I understood Him to be the second Adam. Why must you die? Why must you die? Why do you have death right now in your members? Death is clutching in every single part of your being right now. Why? Because you are responsible 
for eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are responsible for Adam's sin. It is called the doctrine of representation. It is called the doctrine of federal headship. You can call it whatever you will. You don't know why you die. Evolutionists don't know why you die. No one understands why we die. You think, you think with evolution, if an amoeba could become an eagle, then surely we would have gotten rid of death somewhere. Right. But no, we can't get rid of death because it's the curse of God upon our race Amen. for one sin by one man in one place. Verse 12 of Romans 5. The first verse I was taught to memorize by my parents when I was five years old. And I thank God that this shows the direction they tried to teach me about me. Romans 5.12 Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so... Death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. But there's only one sin under consideration here, Adam's sin. That's proven by the little adverb, so. Because so tells us it happened in the way that's just been described. Verse 13, for until the law, that's the law of Moses that came 2,500 years after Adam. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless... Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned. After the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Do you know what those three verses are telling you? Before the law of God was given by Moses, when he came down with the two tablets of Ten Commandments, men can't be charged guilty of sin when there is no law that they're breaking. But they all died anyway. They all died anyway. Whether it was infants or old people, they all died anyway. Why? Because they were all guilty. By our first father, Adam. Amen. Now, that's, that's a horrible doctrine. If that doesn't cause you to fall before your creator and beg for mercy, I don't know what will. That is, a, that is a horrible doctrine, but I'm using the word horrible in the way of terrible from Psalm 65. I love the doctrine because it has this corollary. Beginning at verse 15 and running through verse 19, the Apostle Paul shows that there is a second Adam who has stood in for you. Right. The first Adam stood in for you in paradise. The first Adam could have made this world one glorious place and kept it that way. He could have not touched the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eaten the tree of life and we would all live forever in paradise. And all we would have to do is dress and keep the garden that God made grow of itself. There wasn't even rain. The earth came up with the moisture and watered the earth. Noah was the first one that ever saw a raindrop. Oh, what a blessing it could have been. But he blew it. He was our representative. God made a covenant with him for the whole human race. But God's made a covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ for his elect race, the ones that were chosen in him. Let's just go to verse 19. We could go to any one of these verses, but 19 is the shortest. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Do you understand the first half? One man disobeyed, and we all became sinners. My mother died one year ago. This Sunday a year ago was her last Sunday with us. I didn't like to see death in my mother. My mother loved the Lord Jesus Christ. I know where she is. I know how happy she was to go there. And she was looking forward to it. And I'm happy for that. But looking at that death, take hold of my mother. 
and her spirit leave and that body become a carcass of clay, I know what Adam did to us. And so it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, my mother sinned herself, and so have I, and so have you. But the sin that we're being held accountable for that brings condemnation upon us is Adam's. For as. Now a comparison is about to be made or you wouldn't have the word as. For as, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so... Those two little adverbs, as, so, mean. In this way is it done in the comparative clause. In the way specified is the way that it's done in the second clause. For as, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Praise God. So when we see the words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, is that salvation to legal righteousness so that we can stand before God? Not a chance. Because the legal righteousness that we have was procured by the Lord Jesus Christ and by his obedience only. Just like it was Adam's sin that condemned us to sin, death, and hell, so the obedience of Jesus Christ secured eternal life for all those that are in him. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. How many are connected to Adam? Every single one of the human race. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Who are the many? Those chosen in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, in Christ Jesus before the world began. That should make sense to you. If they were chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began... And then 4,000 years after creation, Jesus came and died for them. And by his singular obedience, singular meaning he's the only one that had to obey, they're righteous forever. Frank, you and I are there because of the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? Did you have to invite Adam into your heart to be your personal sin representative in order to be considered a sinner and go to hell and die? Did you even have to hear about Adam, for that to be true of you. Are there people all over this globe that have never heard of Adam and Eve, and yet they all died about the same time we die, who have heard about Adam and Eve? Because there's a covenant that's already been made with Adam 6,000 years ago that is binding on them. That is why they die. But there's a covenant made with the Lord Jesus Christ called the Everlasting Covenant. And the great shepherd of the sheep shed his blood for all those that were in him. Right. And they were put in him by God before the world began. So we ask ourselves, what does it mean, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? That can't mean, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be elected. It can't mean, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be justified. Because we read right here that the righteousness of justification is by the obedience of one. And believing on Jesus Christ is certainly an act of obedience on our part, but it's not involved. In this part of salvation, it's got to be involved in some other aspect of salvation. Well, what comes next? Regeneration. That is being born again. And being born again is something that you don't participate in either. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. And forgive me for not making very much progress. Ephesians chapter 2. 
Verse 1. Amen. These that were chosen in Christ, because remember Paul said, according as he hath chosen us. So Paul's referring to himself, his fellow apostles, and the audience in Ephesus. That's 1-4. According as he hath chosen us. But now there's something else needs to happen to us. We were chosen in Christ. We were made accepted in the Beloved. That's justification in verse 6. We were made accepted in the Beloved. That's in the Lord Jesus Christ because we were predestinated to that. But now there's a next, the next phase or the next operation of grace and salvation is found in chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you hath he quickened. Now what does it mean to be quickened? To be quickened is to be made alive. The quick that is under your fingernail does not like to be cut or pierced with a pin. You can cut your fingernails because they're rather senseless. But if you stick that same pair of scissors under your fingernail, you're going to hit the quick because it's alive. And you have to quicken. What does the word mean? To be quickened is to be given life. And you have to quickened who were dead. Now it should be obvious. You should be able to figure out the definition of the word just by reading the sentence. Remember in school when you used to say, would you please use it in a sentence for me? Then you knew what word was under consideration. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is our state by nature, by being born the first time. Wherein in time past, you Ephesians, ye, walked according to the course of this world. You were like everyone else on this planet. According to the prince of the power of the air, the devil was your leader. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, you were depraved reprobates just like them from all outward appearances among whom also, among those worldly people following the devil, we all had our conversation, that is our lifestyle, our conduct, in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. By our nature, we look like all those that are on their way to hell because there wasn't one whit of difference, because we love sin as much as they did. We were following the devil just like they did. So this verse tells us very plainly that though God had elected in eternity, that was chapter 1, though Christ had justified at the cross, that was chapter 1, there is still a problem with our nature. Even though my name is written in heaven, and even though Jesus paid for my sins at the cross, I have a sinful nature. And that nature looks just like the rest of the sinful world. So my nature needs to be changed. I'm dead, just like God told Adam he would die spiritually. I need to be made alive. Well, I was born once, and I'm dead. So I need to be born twice, and I'm alive. It's called being born again. It's called regeneration. My parents generated me the first time. God regenerated me. The first time made me a son of Roland. The second time made me a son of God. Praise His glorious name. And I was predestinated to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the fifth verse of chapter 1, according to the good pleasure of His will. But now I have this nature problem. But verse 4, another inspired disjunctive. That's a but. A but that's drawing a chasm between two thoughts. Verses 1 through 3 are hopeless. By nature, we look like the children of wrath. But God... But God. It's always God. It's not but Jonathan. It's but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, 
hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. What can you do to help yourself when you're dead? What if someone brings the cure for cancer to a person that's died of cancer? Too late. Our nature, it's too late for our nature. We, we don't need help. We need life. And God gave us life. Amen. And so when it says, Whosoever believeth on him shall be saved, can that belief be the condition for getting born again? How does a dead man believe? We're dead toward God. We're following Satan and we're following him willingly. We have to be regenerated first. So there are three phases of salvation that come before our faith. So when we look at that verse, Romans 10, 13, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that how they get elected? Not a chance. Before the foundation of the world. Is that how they get justified? Not a chance. Jesus justified them by his singular obedience. Is that how they get regenerated? Not a chance. They need to be regenerated first or they wouldn't have the life to call upon him. And let me finish this way. And boy, I sure did not make the progress I wanted to. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and cast ourselves upon his finished work at the cross, does it save us from all human systems of religion that require works to go to heaven? Yes, it does. So there's a salvation. Whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when we go back to Romans chapter 10, does it say that everyone who believes on Christ, the law, the law of Moses, for a way of righteousness is ended? So that's a salvation. If we believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's a present, I use the present tense verb, we believe, whosoever believeth, if you believe on Jesus Christ as the Son of God, is there a salvation yet coming that that believing provides the evidence for? Yes. yes. And what is that salvation that is yet coming? Glorification. Amen. Whosoever believeth on him shall be glorified. That's the connection. Because believing on Him doesn't get us elected. Believing on Him doesn't get us justified. Believing on Him doesn't get us regenerated. But believing on Him converts us from all false systems of religion and is the evidence that when He comes, we shall be saved with an everlasting salvation because our faith shows that we're God's elect, justified by Christ, regenerated by the Spirit, and all such persons shall be glorified. For whom he did predestinate, he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Romans 8, 28 through 39. Much more could be said. Much more will be said. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.